0: American Christmas is very good at arousing in us warm, sentimental, cozy feelings. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Bing Crosby and the Abominable Snowman. You know, Claymation and Rudolph. Psalm 2 is, is none of those things. I mean, There's, there's nothing warm and sentimental about it. So why, and there's really nothing traditional. I mean, I've, I've never heard a Christmas sermon based on Psalm 2. Well, why did I choose it? For this reason, because it's quoted in the New Testament 18 times, it's extremely important for us understanding the nature of our faith, who Jesus is, and the nature of his kingship. I want you to just be listening as I read through Psalm 2, the kind of unique Christmas component to a psalm that you wouldn't assume is, is, is there. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, or Messiah, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one in heaven, the one enthroned in heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, that is, in Jerusalem. Another, another word for way of describing Jerusalem. Verse 7, you hear it changes. The person who's speaking changes a little bit here. Uh, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Which is an ancient way of saying, Today I have become your father. Hmm. (laughs) Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, regarding his enemies. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What an interesting juxtaposition, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, pay homage to the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, that, yeah, not a very traditional Christmas psalm, but any idea of the original context of when it was written, why it was written? Maybe if you look in the bottom of your study Bible, you'll you'll see. So originally, this was we think it was a coronation psalm. It was used as as part of the royal pomp and circumstance at the crowning of a new king. You can imagine King David, for instance, and all of the I don't know the the his attendants and he marching down the center aisle and the city of Jerusalem as he makes his way up to the throne. When they, uh, right as they're about to put the crown on his head, somebody, part of the royal procession, calls out, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's what happens when the crown comes on his head. It was very likely that it was used kind of um, in, in that way. Like, when you were enthroned as the king of Israel, there was a sense that you were a- a born as God's child, his, his son. Isn't that interesting? So the trumpets uh, flare, and the, the cheer goes up from the crowd. And everybody rejoices, and uh, all is right in Camelot, except that's not what the psalm says. Look down at verse 1. See what it says there? The nations are in a rage over this. They they're furious at this appointment of the new king. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's almost a picture of a vast conspiratorial plot is being hatched among the uh, the enemies, the hostile enemies of Israel. Uh, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. I can imagine God sitting up in heaven, atop His holy and majestic throne, looking down on Earth and and watching these little ants saying, "We will overcome Him. (laughs) We will take them." How does God respond? He laughs. He laughs. It's it's a, a, a laugh of mockery, a laugh of derision. It's a, (laughs) God laughs and warns them and says, this is, the king is mine. I am with him. I will bless him. Submit, kiss, pay homage to my king. Okay, that's the original setting of the psalm. Um, How does that relate to Christmas? Well, fast forward about a thousand years to the year 4 B.C., as you, you probably you probably know that the Gregorian calendar, as we follow it, we're in 2015. Anno Domini. Well, Jesus wasn't born in year zero. He was probably born in 4 BC. I mean, even yeah, most historians, even secular historians, would agree to that fact. A thousand years forward, and and who are the who are the nations? Who are the kings of the world in that day? Uh, Caesar Augustus, head of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire has reached its zenith at this point. I mean, it's it's at its its peak power, and it certainly does not acknowledge God or acknowledge His King. Uh, you have you have Herod the Great. So Josephus, Herod the Great, besides Jesus, Herod, we know more about Herod the Great as an ancient figure. Now, like anybody else, Josephus, the Jewish historian, ended up writing two entire volumes on, Joseph, uh, on Herod the Great because he was great. He was he was this master architect, builder, politician. Uh, he he did all kinds of of things, and and he's he's in charge. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're in charge, and it's into this world, a world of. Vicious little ants that God laughs I, the, when God laughs though this time it's not the laugh of mockery when God laughs at christmas it's not the laugh of derision it, it's the laugh of a man who is about to see the birth of his only begotten son it, it can you, if you hear the laugh, the laugh is the laugh of of joy it's the laugh of surprise. In the background of the laugh is a gasp from the angels, hardly believing that this is happening. When the angels know Psalm 2, they know that when God laughs, that means a king has come to crush the rest of the you know, Caesar and, and Herod and all of them like a piece of pottery. They know, and then God's laugh turns in, not to a laugh of mockery, but into a laugh of joy. And he says, Today... I have begotten you. Today I've become your father. Verse 10. Let's read verse 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. And this image of kissing the son. I don't know if it meant that they kiss his feet. Do they, kind of like the Pope, do you kiss his ring? (laughs) do you kiss the ground in front but it, the whole idea is you are submitting to the greatness of the sun that is what that's what the the nations are are being told to do lest he be angry and perish and you perish in the way the year was december the the year was 1914 the day was christmas eve december the 24th a group of german soldiers near the western front were in world war 1 on the border of France and Belgium, this group of German soldiers put down their machine guns and their mortars and began scavenging for Christmas trees behind the trenches. Do you, you know this story? Anybody? So, uh, four months of war and bombing and the, you know, the, the whole landscape was a moonscape. It was entirely devastated. So, their task of finding suitable Christmas tree candidates was, uh, it was challenging. But they did, three or four or five, I don't remember exactly how many Christmas trees they, little scrawny pine trees they brought back to the trenches. But that's what happened. Remember trench warfare in World War I, how utterly awful it was? You have these men who, I mean, they feared for their lives. To get out of the trenches, even to go to the bathroom, was extremely dangerous, so in the bottom of the trenches, you had four months of, of human excrement and waste. You had dismembered limbs. You had dead bodies. They just lived there in the trenches. And it all, all the scum piled up. You know, and, and three Christmas trees also. <laughs> also. So what do they do? They, they began to decorate their Christmas trees. They decorated it with candles and cookies. I guess cookie ornaments of all things. And they, uh, they found among themselves white cloths. To, you know, they tore them up into little pieces and put it on the Christmas tree for, for snow decoration. Then they lifted the Christmas trees up behind the trench, on the open ground, behind uh, the trench. And they began to sing. One of the soldiers who was there captured the moment. He said, all along the whole line, German soldiers began to sing Christmas songs in chorus. They sing, Oh, thou blissful, oh, thou joyous mercy bringing Christmas time. That night, I was with a company of soldiers that was only about five paces away from our our French enemies. The candles were burning brightly, and from everywhere throughout the forest, one could hear powerful carols come floating over of peace on earth and goodwill to men. The, the French and the English soldiers were incredulous. What, what is this? What are these strange lights? And what is that sound? The guns stopped firing and, and they stood up out of their trenches, stood on the parapet without any fear and quite overpowered by the emotion of the moment with their caps off their ha- heads and in their hands. Then we, the German soldiers, left our trenches. We walked across no man's land, and we exchanged gifts with them a chocolate, cigarettes we We showed each other family photos, laughing, everybody was laughing and and all the while the carols kept resounding ever ever more longingly, oh, thou blissful, joyous mercy!" Then a soccer ball appeared <laughs> did you know that So they they got a soccer ball out and it was Germans versus the French in no man's land between the two trenches and they played a game of Christmas soccer and for one brief remarkable day there was peace and goodwill among the enemies. That's the story of the Christmas truce of 1914. Now when I hear that, I've heard that story for a number of times and over over several years and uh, when I think of it, I see it as a signpost. Isn't that what it is? It's a signpost pointing to how do we actually get peace on this earth. I mean, surely nobody in here thinks that like, we're going to get peace when just everybody bows the knee to the United Nations, right? Or everybody agrees that the whole world needs Western democracy. That, that'll do it. No. No. Soldiers put down their weapons, their armaments, when they submit to something that is, that is grander, far immeasurably grander and greater than, than their own cause, than their, than their own selves. And that's what we have on, on Christmas in 1914. We have a group of soldiers on the Western Front kissing the sun, honoring the sun, bowing down, so to speak, before the sun. So secondly, I want us to look with me at verse 7. 7, yes, 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's pretty easy to find the Christmas reference there. (laughs) Joseph, we don't, Joseph wasn't his father. Joseph might have been his dad, but he wasn't his father. Jesus only had one father. And I think God laughed when he when he begot the son in the, the conditions of that first Christmas. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, we have this erroneous picture of Mary and Joseph. She's pregnant and, and having contractions. And they're, she's on the back of a donkey, and they're traveling down from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And she could give birth at any moment, and, oh, it's, there's all this tension, narrative tension. But no, none of that is actually in Luke's gospel, not, not a single bit of it. They probably ar- arrived in Bethlehem, with plenty of time to spare, Bethlehem. If you read Luke's gospel carefully, you will see Bethlehem was was Joseph's hometown. It, it also all happened to be his ancestral hometown, like the you know the great 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 grandfathers. But it, it was actually his hometown. He grew up there, which means his family still lived there. His brothers and sisters. And mom and dad, they they didn't go down and need to stay at a wayside inn. When it, our translations read that there was no room for them in the inn, that's a, a terrible translation of the Greek Greek uh, noun. There, I talked about talked to you about it last last Christmas. Um, no, what really happened, or what we think in this reconstruction of events, what we think happened was. It says literally that there was no room for them in the place they were staying. And the place they were likely staying was in a small newlywed apartment on the second story of Joseph's family's house. That's commonly the most common thing that would happen after a betrothed couple was married, and they wouldn't cohabitate before they got married. But once they had had their wedding ceremony up in Nazareth, or maybe in Bethlehem itself, they move into a, a small little newlywed apartment where they would live until they could you know, get enough finances to start out on their own. So when it says that there was no room for them in the place they were staying, what it most likely means, there was no room for them in that, that little tiny space. At least not enough room for a midwife, not enough room for another family member to help. So what did they do? They went to the most natural place you would go if your upstairs is full. Where did they go? Downstairs into the largest room of the house. And in their, those country farmhouses, they would oftentimes bring animals in. Because, you know, they would help heat the house and they would protect the animals from theft. So there would be a manger there. But what she did is she gave birth downstairs downstairs. Um, and the reason God laughs is is not because there was this callous innkeeper who s- sent Mary and Joseph out, off into the pouring rain or because Joseph was such a nincompoop, he didn't make arrangements for you know, crowding in the city of Bethlehem at census time. No, it's the reason God laughs is because his son was begotten in a basement. His son was begotten on the ground floor. And that was in the language of Psalm two his, his enthronement ceremony, his coronation ceremony. Today I have begotten you in a basement. You gotta laugh. <laughs> Finally, that's, let's move on to uh, let's go on to verse eight, where God says to his son, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You know, I I do believe that there's nothing wrong with watching Frosty the Snowman and drinking hot chocolate by the light of a Christmas tree and and singing White Christmas. I mean, I would be the first to admit that the Christmas industry that exists is nuts. It's gross. It's terrible. I mean, of course, we all hate this rank commercialization of Christmas, but you don't have to reject all of that stuff necessarily, no, you, so long as you explain to your children, have deeper conversations with your children about, you know, that's the silly fun stuff and this is the really important stuff. This is what Christmas is all about. And I, I trust that, you know, most of your parents, you do that. Like when we unwrap Christmas on, pre- or, you know, Christmas presents on Christmas Day, we would always ask each other, or I'd ask the kids the question, why do we do this? Why are, why are we unwrapping gifts? And the answer you're supposed to give kids, chain of kids, is that it, it's emblematic of God's great gift to us. What was God's great gift to the world? Baby Jesus. What, question number two, what was God's great gift to baby Jesus? According to Psalm 2. What was God's great gift to baby Jesus? The world. (laughs) God's great gift to the world is his son, and God's great gift to his son is this whole stinking world. All the nations, from every tongue tribe, and language and people group. The father gives as his royal inheritance at his enthronement ceremony from day one in the basement of Bethlehem. The father says to his son, All of this is yours. Uh, I hope you'll take heart of that message. And will you tell your kids that part of the story? Does does that part of the story actually get spoken about in your household? The cosmic view of what God has promised to Jesus. Does that part of the story um, comfort you when you watch the news, for instance? I mean, Christmas 2015, it seems like it's just nuts out there. It's crazy, isn't it? Middle East. The Middle East has always been a mess as long as as we've been alive, but doesn't it feel like it's even more a mess this year with ISIS? Um, you got Europe bursting at the seams with refugees, Russia and Turkey fighting, and Russia holding on to Crimea, and boy, that looks like it could get ugly quick. You have terrorist attacks in Paris, and not only in Paris, and San Bernardino, and And even if the terrorists aren't killing us, well, we're killing each other. You look at the copycat gun violence. Yeah, it does look pretty messed up. But take heart. God's promise to his son will be fulfilled. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. Yes, we might be distressed today by the craziness and... the the evil of the world, but that does not falsify the good news that the royal kingdom that was promised to Jesus on day number one, Christmas day number one, will surely be given to him. We are just like all Christians at all times, distressed but hopeful, awaiting the time, awaiting the moment when Psalm 2 is finally fulfilled.